Hello and welcome to PhysioNote Sounds. This is the Paediatric Physiotherapists podcast. I'm Gavin Spence joining you from Cambridge in the UK. Michalis, you're joining us from the London region, I think. Absolutely. And uh, I really look forward to the uh, podcast today discussing about triage clinics, advanced practitioners, how we get there, what's what's the best way to, to organize that kind of practice. And uh, we're both very privileged to have two special guests uh, today, one from the community, but also one from the tertiary referral center. Sure. So um, ladies first, Hazel. Hazel Bartley, you are our representative from the tertiary center. You're very welcome. So please tell us a little bit about your role, um, how you got into this role and what your practice involves. Thank you very much for having me. I got into this role by default and probably like most physios, you always feel as if you have imposter syndrome and always feel reluctant to go for these higher roles and worry that you've not got the relevant experience or training or education to match it. But I'd worked in the hospital for about eight years in paediatric physiotherapy, the musculoskeletal service. So I'd got to know the team very well, felt comfortable in my role and was quite happy within that role. But a maternity leave opportunity arose and I was encouraged to go for it. And again, wasn't sure about it and was worried about because I didn't feel probably that I had the relevant education to match. But actually, it was for me, it was having a supportive team around um, and also having that opportunity to observe others doing the role. Um, And around that time, I also joined the MSK committee for the APCP, the Association of of Paediatric Physios, and found a network there to really support that role. Um, So a lot of the physios there were working in similar roles around the country. And the roles are very, very variable depending on where you're working. And it opened my eyes to a lot of other opportunities and learning options and having a network of people that I could go to for support and also how I could progress my career in a way that was comfortable for me because it did feel like a big leap at the time. Thanks. Uh, our other guest, Mr. Johan Delport, you, you are also in an advanced practice, extended role, but you're in a community setting at least now. And I, I noticed you were nodding uh, <laughs> enthusiastically. I think you recognise some of those motivations oh, that, that Hazel was talking about, some of those feelings. So yeah, t- tell us a bit about your role and, well, and how you got into that. First of all, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad um, Hazel used exactly the term I was going to use, which is imposter syndrome. And I'm really happy I'm not the only one in a position where we actually all feel a little bit out of our depth, even though we do have the experience. And as Hazel says, sometimes, especially if you look around now, people will say, you know, you need a master's level education. And before the podcast, Hazel and I had a chat and we said, yeah, we're going to be relics in a a bit where we are going to be the ones without this. But how did I get to where I am? I flitted around quite a bit. Um, As you can hear, it's not an English accent I've got. I came over to the UK in 2003 to specialize in in pediatrics, physiotherapy is what I wanted to do. And I've always had the hope to actually work in MSK specifically. Did a lot of community work, ended up being very lucky enough to get a a job with um, Gavin's team in, I think that was 2016, Gavin, in Great Ormond Street, which I still don't understand how I passed the interview process. But yeah, I was there and came back to community and then decided for a bit to just 
change things again, um, went to do a bit of private work in the Middle East, which unfortunately didn't quite work out. And I was then very lucky enough for a fantastic opportunity to come available here in lovely Shropshire, where I have made myself a home and managed to yeah get a great role with a fantastic team who is also currently in flux and which really just suited where I was in my in my career and we can all build together to hopefully build up a fantastic service here in the Midlands. And Hazel, Johan used that word about relic, you know, it was something we were discussing before. Do you think that this sort of move towards making this a more academic career or, uh, you know, in order to take this, make this career move, you have to have the academic qualification. Do you see that as a step in the right direction? I do. I think that's a really positive move because I think that was some one of the reasons why I felt reluctant for it was because I didn't feel I had that. Whereas compared to our consultant or colleagues, they go through the exams. And so you feel like you've then done the necessary education and quality. You've got something on a bit of paper that says you are qualified to do this role. Whereas we don't have that. We were reliant on our experience and our colleagues that we were working with really to say, no, you you do have it, but you don't have a bit of paper that says so. Um, And I think having that pathway now, it also helps to make it a much broader role. Um, So rather than just thinking about the clinical, it is thinking about all the the pathways, the communications with the other teams and um, how to improve the service as well as just having the actual, the clinical knowledge for it as well. And I think that will help to give people confidence and to make it a much broader role and help to progress um, for the future as well. I think something that Hazel said, very important there is, is confidence. You find that even after a long time doing something, a lot of therapists lack that confidence to make sometimes the bigger decisions or just feel that yes what I've done is actually yes it is the right thing where it can happen that you become slightly insulated in your your team and by having this opportunity that's there now to make it more of a academic situation where you can actually go and and learn a little bit and bring that back to your team and learn from others I think is is very important because previously in the NHS it was always very much sort of filling dead man's shoes and it was about just length of experience but now they actually want it comes back to evidence-based so they want that evidence that this person is the right right person for the job and having a, a little bit of extra education gives you that evidence and makes you feel more confident and, and, I, and I presume I think well, what do you both say it's very very important obviously I know Hazel very well I mean we've been working together for the last few years at the Vienna London Children's Hospital uh, it, it makes it even difficult for us consultants you know at the moment the way the model that we have at the Evelina is that Hazel will do the physio triage clinic next to a consultant so we can always discuss about any cases before the clinic start. We can discuss during. I can go there if, if I need to. We, we know each other now very well. One big thing, Hazel, that we've done is now you are able to request x-ray. So you don't have to rely on me waiting for me to finish my patient. And that's, that's a great thing, don't you think? I think that's been a huge change in it because when the, it, with the initiative to start this 
was brought out, the patients that were referred into this clinic were very much the normal variants and perhaps Oscar Schlatter's and Sever's at a push. And that was it. And the, the purpose of the triage clinic was to discharge patients from the waiting list, really. And so and that worked really well. And I think because of that, it then expanded. But because we've now got our rights for requesting x-rays and MRI scans, that has been huge in changing the patients that we see, which makes it a much more interesting role for us. But it does mean that we're seeing some more complex patients now. So I think that, for me, is the importance of having the consultant nearby or available for a timely chat about those patients but also that we again don't have any qualification to say that we can look at x-rays um, so it's having somebody there who's also able to if you spot something unusual to have that second person there who can say that is okay or that's not okay and that has changed the way that the clinic has worked in the last few years. Uh, absolutely yeah. it has it's a big game changer and as you very rightly say that there's two different kind of triage clinics that you can have those which are the normal variants which certainly you can run independently and those ones that they need to be done probably with association with the concern up to some point and then i think our vision hazel it is that in our institution anyway you're going to become independent probably when that's also accredited with a master's degree then you formally can run a clinic on your own and like any other clinic of course we will discuss every case i think that's that's kind of our ambition isn't it johan you you what are your thoughts about this i, I mean you also deal with triage the osgood schlatters the normal variants you get and you have to decide what you're going to do with them and i always wonder Seeing those kind of patients, I don't consider a good use of my time, but I don't think it's a good use of your time or Hazel's time either. So so how do you square that circle? Well, interesting. Uh, we are very much at the, in the team I am now having that discussion. So uh, m- my role in this team is MSK clinical lead. And I've come in and uh, slightly been myself very much from the start and like a bit of a bull in a china shop and decided you know there are some processes that can be improved and the major thing i wanted to improve in in the service i'm in now is our triage and our whole triage process which is actually a project we are doing as a team at the moment that i've instigated and it is looking at these normal variants and i agree with you gavin it shouldn't be something that goes to uh, michaelis or hazel really it should hopefully mostly be dealt with in community And do we need to see them? Sometimes, yes. What these parents want most of the time is reassurance. I used uh, your definition for normal variant recently in in a training session, Gavin, and now I can't think what it is. It's something that is clinically seems significant, but will sort itself out by itself and doesn't need any treatment. Now, somebody needs to explain that to the parent. And it's usually, as you know, my my big saying, Gavin, is who's got the problem? Is it the parent or the child? If you can explain to the, the parent that this is actually normal, it helps. The question is, how do you do that? Do you need to do this as a face-to-face Can you do this by educating your referrers? Can you do this by putting out education material on your trust website? I think if you can educate your referrers to have a slightly better understanding of what 
is to be expected at certain ages, you will cut down on the waiting lists and waiting times that come into community services. But you will always get the patient or the parent who is still not quite happy and need somebody to just say, you know what, actually, that is all okay. And they want somebody with the experience. And in that case, I've got no problem with running, say, a normal variant triage clinic where you know the ones now coming through are ones where the parents are really concerned because you've educated your uh, referrer. So if you get a proper enough referral with enough information on the referral, and that doesn't just say anterior knee pain or child has pain in foot, which is honestly the type of referrals you sometimes can get. If you've got enough information on the referral, you can have a good guess whether this might be a normal variant or not. And for those children, I feel you can do either an online consultation or a short consultation in clinic and most of them you'd be able to reassure and discharge the odd ones that do need to be further investigated if you have the experience you can then go right this looks like something i need to investigate further i need to either if you are lucky like hazel be able to order an x-ray order the x-rays or have good communication with whoever the person is that can do that so that'll be my next question actually to you uh, jochen how how do you find this is a new role for you? How do you find the communication between community and patient referral? Who is it the one? Because obviously you, you don't have the luxury of getting in the x-rays or the luxury of having a consultant next year like Hazel has. So how, how do you do that? How difficult it is and where do you think the solution is going to be? It's a difficult question, Michalis, because it can work well and it, it can break down very easily as well. Because unfortunately, as we know, the NHS, even though we are all labeled NHS, we are different services and we not all the services have access to each other's databases or notes. So immediately there's that block. So how do we improve this is, like I said, what will help is if referrers give you the right information how do they know what the right information is you need to first of all tell them what you want on a referral and what you will accept as a good referral so things like does the child have a functional issue what is the reason they want physiotherapy to see the child give me a little bit more explanation around the child but then it's also very important that they are open to discussion between the community therapy team and the GP, the OT you work with, the speech and language therapist you work with, the consultant at the tertiary center. There needs to be that willingness to communicate and have open and frank communication and trust each other. Trust the fact that you've got therapists on the ground who see these children day in, day out and actually have the skills to make very good clinical decisions. So it's important yeah. to have a performer. I definitely agree with that. And probably, I mean, we'll see what, what Hazel thinks, but it's a combination. You provide education to GPs and, uh, let's say, private physiotherapists. You have a great website where the people can see, not just parents, but also referrers can see that. You do clinics face-to-face. -face. Do you do any virtual clinics? There's no specific virtual clinics set up at the moment. The good thing to have come out of COVID is that there are quite a few virtual clinic 
bits of software available and we have really started using that over over the initial lockdowns so the technology is available and i honestly think that especially something like a normal variant clinic can so easily be done as a virtual clinic just for that it's almost a second triage so you get your initial load of referrals in you know okay this is something that looks like i actually need to see fairly soon very urgently get my hands on these are ones that probably are the normal variant slash worried well i can stick them all into a clinic and work through them fairly quickly hazel i'm wondering what what your thoughts are about this you know virtual clinics and educating referrers i know an ex-colleague of mine michaelis and probably of yours too he was talking about educating referrers and he went on a, a bit of an education spree in the hope that he would reduce referrals and what actually happened was he got more well we ran virtual triage clinics during covid in a, in a way of keeping things going and hopefully picking up anything that was worrying at that time but what we found was we ended up seeing them twice so we obviously weren't reassured enough so anything that we couldn't do at the time whether that be the objective examination that we couldn't get hands on to really have a check or you know it was it wasn't a good picture it was pixelating you didn't get a, a great look at that child and um, we ended up doubling up on what we were doing so it was less effective and efficient and quite often we would do everything we go oh but I would be happier if we could just x-ray this and so we then bring them back in an x-ray but of course that's an appointment as well so we were less efficient with doing it when we look back at all our data and I think parents are not as reassured by it as well so I like Johan think it's in theory it should work and I think I had a medical student with me recently who was who was quite unimpressed to be with me I think and said so you don't actually do anything with these patients do you you just tell them they're fine and I thought that that is a lot of it um but that's the good outcome for a lot of these people. And I said, <laughs> what we're really doing is looking for the needle in the haystack. So you want to, you want most of them to be the hay. And, yeah. you know, you're just trying to filter out those ones where you just got to find that needle because those are the ones that you really need to focus on. So uh, that's OK if, if a lot of them are fine. That's the purpose of us seeing them rather than them sitting on a surgeon's waiting list and causing months of delay to somebody who really needs that investigation or that surgery. So that's the use of of this clinic but I think the education part is huge and there's a lovely pathway and it's called the right path I think it's from Newcastle that the physios and it is a community um, team that set that up I think it was um, predominantly from an inflammatory black background but they did it for a lot of normal variants and it was really to try and help the GPs to filter the referrals appropriately and it and it's brilliant and it's just um how we can I think filter it out into the rest of the country because it's it's they've got so great pathway set up there uh, I can tell you all guys okay so Hazel is doing a, a fantastic job that you know she probably doesn't hasn't told you so with the normal variants she identifies those one in 20 that really need to see a surgeon and, and this is the very important thing because these are the ones that are not going to be missed. The scuffy, the, the tumor, these are the things that everybody really, the DDH, these are the things that everybody really scared about. These are the, the ones that get missed. She identifies them and she makes the appropriate referrals. 
And, and the other thing is what I, I can say is we tried to maximize the time of Hazel when she's in the clinic. So now, because she can order x-rays and she's very, very good at interpreting x-rays, like hip x-rays, for example, she does the follow-up of the DDHs. They don't necessarily need to be seen by a consultant. Those stable DDH that they need a few x-rays until they're five, you know, they are followed up by Hazel. And one thing that I can say about physiotherapists and Gavin will agree, you're very good at monitoring your practice, guys, okay? You're doing, Hazel has done fantastic audits of her walk so far with a lot of data there, which is very, very useful how we're improving our practice and all the things that we're implementing I think it, it works so well and there's a lot of things that we can even improve our practice by finding out what are the models that are out there. Hazel, yeah. can I ask a question? In the community, unfortunately, we won't have the capacity of having a consultant available to help us with the, uh, some of the bigger calls or if we order x-rays or whatever. What is your thought on uh, first contract? practitioners for uh, which is basically a similar sort of thing and uh, because i know it's working in adult msk and i was I, th I think it's something i'd love to see being rolled out in pediatric msk so that you're actually in the gp surgery and almost again stopping that referral coming to the community team but having a, a somebody looking at them quicker and sooner i think in theory it is a very similar role I think as a practitioner, I would feel a lot more vulnerable being out in that community setting without the support around me, just probably because that's what I'm used to. And I realise that you don't have that as it is at the moment. So I'm I'm starting from a very good place at the moment. And I think it's a worry. I hear sometimes that adult first contact practitioners are seeing paediatric patients. They and that are. is a worry for me um, because they're coming from an adult background and I wouldn't put myself in the position to go and see an adult patient because it's many years since I've treated adult patients and I think similarly that needs to be something that if that's what's happening then I think much better that we have pediatric FCPs in areas but there obviously won't be such a there's not such a huge volume of them so they would probably have to they wouldn't be your local GP practice and then you are almost setting up outreach clinics yeah. which is it much different from going to a community or a tertiary centre but I agree, it's it's it doesn't need to be done in a tertiary centre for those sort of the normal variant type of presentations who often don't need the x-rays, but it could be arranged at, for a later time if needed. Yeah. So I think, yeah, that there's a benefit to be had for it. But yeah, I think at the moment it's, it's, an, it's a grey area. Yeah, well, I'm, I just also want to say I'm extremely jealous of the fact that you can order x-rays and have that uh, support. I had a patient recently in clinic that I suspected a, a scoofy and honestly trying to get that child x-rayed ended up such a hassle you know who do I go to do I do I send them to A&E do I go via the GP I contacted the local tertiary center who advised me to go to A&E uh, A&E was not overly helpful when I contacted them and asked are they happy to see this patient if I send them? In the community, it is a bit of a minefield. And I think that's where therapists want the most reassurance that they're doing the right thing. And it's sometimes difficult and it can be a bit scary. I'm glad you mentioned Scoofy because I have to tell you, if, uh, for those who follow the literature, it was 1st of April where the results of the uh, multinational multi-center study 
from the UK from 250 uh, hospitals that have chilling units were published. And one of the take home message was the massive delay on diagnosing scufis and, and which is directly related to the severity of scufis and all the consequences to the costs for the NHS and of course the consequences for the patient. So it's a massive thing. And I, doing myself uh, uh, cerebral palsy and, and, and chairing kind of the uh, CPEEP uh, pathway for Southeast of England, where we try now to get those community physiotherapists to be able to order x-rays. I don't know if we're going to manage to do this. I think it is also very important that those kind of patients who are identified by the community physiotherapists like yourself, Jochen, you know, they get the, there's a, there's the pathways how to get those x-rays and that's probably the way forward mm. to deal with pathologies such as such as Kufi um, uh, with the ambition to be able to order x-rays especially if it's formally accredited you know you have the formal accreditation via master's degrees or being able to uh, order the the x-rays when and if appropriate and Michael, so that again for me comes back to the communication and trust that there should be the trust from the hospital side, from the acute side, from the tertiary side, that they actually trust the therapists on the ground who are well experienced, see all these children. We are so in tune to notice something that's not right as as physiotherapists. I've, I always say to my team and my and students or anybody else that comes through, if your gut tells you something is wrong, something is probably worth investigating. And we are so good as therapists at scratching and going, you know, th this just doesn't look quite right. And let us make that call. I think it's, it's, well, it's I, important. I hope your, your guys, your, your peers and, and other physiotherapists who listen to this podcast will subscribe to physionote.org, which is just one of the many networks that you have there. But, you know, it's important when you're stuck and you don't know what to do, just post your case somewhere to an online platform so you can get a bit of support by uh, your peers, mm. which then they can tell you, well, just get an x-ray, you know, either I speak to your GP, refer to A&E, and then so on. So I think it's important for, for every physiotherapist, when you get stuck, we do it all the time, and it's for us, it's very, very common, but I, I, I have a feeling for physiotherapists, it's not very common just to go out there and, and admit, you know, I have a problem here, what should I do? And that's kind of a cultural change that probably needs needs to happen mm. i mean i don't know what hazel thinks about this it's definitely good to build those communication and we've been doing it recently with our own community teams but it does take time to unpick what's been had before and to restart to so that everyone feels happy and comfortable and knows what the new pathways will be and it, it does take time to implement but i think it's just the more you speak to each other mm. the the better Correct. like you say it's that that understanding that trust and knowing that you can good have that back and forth with each other that's really important to to keep on developing and as michaelis have said um be prepared to say i don't know there's nothing wrong with not knowing something. The worst thing you can do is try and make up something and end up doing the wrong thing. Just say, sorry, I do not know. I will get back to you and get the answer and ask somebody you trust. Everybody should have another therapist or a doctor or somebody that they trust and can go ask questions i always also say the the most important question you can ask is why and that goes for everything why am i seeing this why has this child got the pain here why have they been referred now you know why 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 please always ask why i'm conscious of the time gavin but one if we couldn't pass one last message is what i always say to all of my colleagues you know 
just listen to parents, especially when, you know, so many times I have neglected SCUFIs, like a year and a half. They've seen the physiotherapist so many times and they do say, my child has pain. Physiotherapy doesn't help. Listen to those parents. So when they say that one, twice, for the third time, then you know you reach your limits. You need to be doing something different. Yeah, I think so. I mean, what both of you have mentioned is a common theme running through all of this is communication and the importance of trust and communication. And I know exactly where you're coming from. I mean, as a surgeon, that trust that we have in you as colleagues is also very important. And I've realized that the more closely I work with my physiotherapy colleagues, the more I have to admit that their skill set is a completely separate thing. I don't understand it. The more time I spend, the more time I spend communicating, the more I realize what it is that you bring to the party. And it's just a question of working together as a team and then the the whole package just becomes 10 times what it would be. Yeah. yeah, so it's look, it's a fascinating topic, but we are out of time. However, there will be plenty of opportunities to continue this with the course from Orthopedic Research UK. We have a whole session to discuss exactly these issues. Uh, we're going to have a debate about it. I hope Johan, Hazel, Michalis, I know you're going to be there, but uh, hopefully... The- Johan and Hazel, you'll be able to join us on that and uh, I look forward to continuing the discussion. It'll be a, a lot of fun. So to all three of you, thank you very much for joining this podcast. It's been great fun talking to you. I hope for people listening, it's been fun to listen to and we look forward to having your company on another podcast in the future. Thanks very much. Goodbye.